Welcome to Climate Radio, where we're continuing to look at solutions. Since the release of the IPCC's report at the end of September, that task has become a whole lot more urgent. The good news is that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has modelled a scenario that keeps us below 2 degrees of temperature rise, so it is still technically possible. The bad news is that is not the track we are currently on, and we need to switch tracks as fast as we possibly can. Last month we looked at the latest edition of the Zero Carbon Britain report, which shows how it's perfectly possible to power the UK by massively scaling up our renewable energy supplies while scaling down our use of energy. In today's show, we look at how we can finance the transition to a Zero Carbon Britain, and we speak to Green Party leader Natalie Bennett about their Plan B. We also discuss whether this transformation needs to be undertaken as a project of national government rather than by profit-seeking corporations. And we look at whether the rapidly building campaign to divest from fossil fuels might be one of the things which helps us get onto a different track. First up we have Colin Hines who founded the Green New Deal Group back in 2007 along with New Economics Foundation fellow Andrew Sims, The Guardian's economics editor Larry Elliott, Green Party MP Caroline Lucas, tax campaigner Richard Murphy, and Anne Pettifor, former head of the Jubilee 2000 debt relief campaign, amongst others. The group have been making the case that if we give austerity the boot and instead invest in the transition to a zero-carbon economy, We will tackle climate change, create jobs and get the economy moving again. So I think it'd be interesting and instructive for people with not quite as long memories if you could remind listeners what the original New Deal was all about. Well, in the 30s, there was the big crash in 1929 and then the, the American economy was on its knees and Franklin Roosevelt rejected what was in those days the free market dominant paradigm and and said look it's the greed of the banks and the rich that got us in this problem so i'm going to constrain them and control them and then we're going to up taxes on companies and the rich and actually spend money on infrastructure improve trade union rights so people get better wages and then can spend in into the society a lot of the money was spent on roads and bridges and dams and things now The Green New Deal was basically, uh, I could see that in 2006, 2007, there was going to be another huge economic spasm, uh, as could have quite a number of other people. And so I thought, well, it's time to update the New Deal uh, into a Green New Deal, i.e. control finance again, but also spend money on green infrastructure that generated jobs all over the country. So is it an oversimplification to say that Roosevelt did the opposite of everything that people are doing now in order to get out of the Great Depression of the 1920s and the 1930s? Well, he did the opposite of what everyone was doing up in 2008, which was to say that the market's God, government's got to get out of the way. And then when the credit crunch came, I think it's no exaggeration to say that Gordon Brown saved the world by dint of the fact that he blew the dust off his Keynesian textbooks. He was staring at the abyss and realised that he actually had to do what Keynes had proposed and what Roosevelt had done in practice, which was 
spend massive amounts of public money, partly propping up the banks, but also trying to generate economic activity. So you had like a year when things were beginning to look better, but then we've uh, gone back because of the power of the idea that open markets are the way to go forward and that government's got to be constrained. Unfortunately, that stupid idea is still very prominent. It has meant that we've had one year of common sense and since four years of making things more miserable for the majority of people. So even Labour seems to be gripped by this mindset of, of cutting government spending rather than yeah, in, investing. Yeah, too, too far, you know, cutting slightly more slowly, a kind of gentler austerity. Mm. In our last programme, we looked at the latest version of the Zero Carbon Britain report, which you seem to be taking on board those recommendations. Yes, their report, I think, was very, very important because, I, personally, I think it established a credible if you like, end-of-the-tunnel picture of what it would look like. Now, the crucial question is, how do you get from here to there? How do you pay for it now? And we have two answers to that. First of all, by actually collecting the tax that is avoided or evaded. Now, that's estimated to be $95 billion a year. Now, they're at present getting rid of 20,000 tax inspectors. I mean, you couldn't think of a more stupid thing to do. So... We've been talking about a £50 billion programme a year, say, for the next four years. And certainly, if the estimated £95 billion money that's avoided or evaded, you know, if, if you got 20% of that, then that would be £20, 20 billion or, um But the other uh, more innovative proposal we've got is that there should be something called green quantitative easing. Now, at this point, your audience is probably dozing off, but this is a very important point. People don't understand that what the Bank of England has done is generate out of nothing, not taxation or anything else, they've just e-printed £375 billion in the last few years. Now, that is £6,000 for every human being in this country. Now, that vast amount of money has been basically given to the finance sector in the hope that they will lend money on and get the economy going. And, of course, all they've done is to put it into corporate bonds and the stock market. And the reason the stock market is so high is nothing to do with the real value of the stocks and shares, but it's because the government printing machines are inflating it like you blow up a balloon. And what we're saying is don't do it like that. Put the money through, say, a green investment bank, and then, and this is a very important point, work out carefully costed schemes so that you don't get inflation and then print the money in order to pay people to do the jobs which we need both to regenerate our economy and tackle climate change. So, yeah, the, the figure that you're talking about, the £50 billion per year investment in, you know, say, uh, kick-starting the transition to a zero-carbon Britain is easily feasible in terms of what the, the government is already doing in terms of quantitative yeah, easing it, it just um, and what we're missing in, in collecting tax from people, corp corporations, pro adequately. Yeah. One of the big differences between Roosevelt's New Deal in the 30s and our Green New Deal was that we always realised that the actual costs involved, you know, the, the, the hundreds of billions over time to shift our entire economy 
would never just be met by the government. Now, all new energy systems need subsidies. Personally, I have no problem with subsidies if they're subsidising the right thing. I mean, nuclear power has been subsidised for decades, a calamitous mistake. Um, and the fossil fuels, whilst making huge profits, have equally been subsidised by national governments. What we need to do is subsidise the wind and wave and solar PV and biofuels when they're useful. And, and what you do is you say, OK, the pension funds grow by $75 billion a year, comes in into pensions. Now, if just 20,000 million of that was used to put into renewables and energy efficiency... That's where you can use state money, not even paying it out, but having it as a guarantee in case things go wrong. Okay. Um, do the, does the Green New Deal have a... I mean, it sounds like you might have a, um, a position on whether um, this kind of um, energy transformation that zero carbon implies is kind of undertaken as a national project or, or, or can be done um, by incentivising private corporations. I think you, what you need is the two things. You need, you need a national commitment. Um, it, you know, it, 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 this is a cliche and it's been used a lot, but it is like another war. You know, in, in, when, when you are threatened, then the government tends to see what ought to be done and then utilises all the tools, and part of the tools is, is private money. And, of course, you know, the, you know, although I'm very against the adoration of the market at the expense of sensible government action, um, I'm also obviously you need you know private players involved as well. But the crucial thing is what's the end goal? What's the purpose? If you're going to be giving them tax breaks um, or, or guarantees or whatever, then they've got to do what the government perceives and you know, people having I mean, voted the government in perceive is in to the best interests of the country. And and to do that, you have to have something which is going to benefit every city through to every hamlet in the country, every constituency in the country. And I think the Green New Deal is unique in the sense that what it's proposing would mean economic activity, jobs, business opportunities, investment opportunities all over the country. And you certainly don't get that from HS2 or from, you know, fantasies about exporting our way out of problems to the Chinese. Some of these ideas obviously aren't, you know, the exclusive um, property of the Green New Deal. They're shared by progressive e economists and what have you. Um, but I'm just wondering how much um, support you're finding for these uh, these ideas. I mean, uh, we were talking about earlier the Labour Party in this country mm. seems to, you know, be, be supporting the kind of neoliberal model, austerity model that Osborne and the Tories are pushing. Um, do you, do you see a kind of upswell at the, in the grassroots for, for support for these ideas? Well, I, I think, this, again, you know, I personally think that economic events are shifting the Labour Party to a much better place. And people are interested. I mean, our thing's been supported by Francis O'Grady of the TUC. The unions are interested. You know, the United Nations Environment Programme used the term and started to emphasise green infrastructure unsurprisingly the greens in the european parliament took it up and they had a european green new deal approach um, we're going to be having meetings with the cbi and the federation of small businesses because 
we're just a handful of people just proposing an idea and trying to hustle it a bit. But what we hope is that other organisations will see that it's to their advantage, it fits their interests, and then they begin to take it up, and then you've got some political momentum. It's not apolitical, but it's certainly not a left-wing or a right-wing thing. It's actually a fairly rational approach to the two big crises we've got, is how on earth do we get the economy going again to pay for all the things we want? And secondly, how do we tackle climate change? That was Colin Hines, founder of the Green New Deal Group. And you can read the group's latest report at greennewdealgroup.org. While the mainstream political parties seem locked in to corporate-friendly business as usual, the Green Party has been waiting in the wings with a plan that aims to decarbonise the UK economy by 2030 by reducing emissions by 10% per year. Here's Natalie Bennett, head of the Green Party of England and Wales. So we had this big report from the IPCC at the end of September. Did you have a a take-home message that kind of hit home for you? I think the thing is that what we've got from the IPCC is the clear message that the debate over the science is over. There is no meaningful question about climate change, the reality of man-made climate change, and the reality of the fact that we need to take urgent action about it. So the climate change deniers, the people who who offer some delightful suggestions such as the fact that, oh, it will just make Britain nice and warm, the flat earth society still exists. And that's fine, but it doesn't mean they should be given any serious attention. And I think there's a real message there, particularly for uh, media like the BBC in particular, that it's, it's time to move on from debate about is there climate change, what's the cause, to what do we do about it. Yeah, there's still quite a, a disconnect between what the IPCC scientists' consensus is saying and what the public understand, and I guess the media are the people that are mediating there. Yes, I think it is worth saying, I mean, the last survey I've seen says 76% of the the public believe in man-made climate change and that we need to do something about it. So, you know, that is a pretty substantial majority on any issue. So, you know, the other side is very much a minority position. Mm. I guess my take-home message was that of the four scenarios that the IPCC modelled, we seem to be on the the kind of uppermost one, which gives us the worst outcome, and that there's only one scenario which keeps us within two degrees C. So we need to get off plan A and on some kind of plan B rapidly. Uh, We don't have a lot of time left. Um, But I mean the Green Party has always been sitting, waiting if you like, with with a plan B. Can you outline some of the kind of key planks of of, um, how you would tackle climate change? Uh, Certainly. I mean I think obviously energy policy is one area that you very much want to start in and the point I keep trying to drive home is the fact that Energy conservation is the great forgotten issue. There's there's effectively nothing about it in the energy bill that's now before Parliament. There's very little talk about it from the three largest parties. And yet we waste so much of the energy we use. And the obvious area is home insulation as an area to start. And the government is not currently spending a single penny of government funds on home insulation schemes. The Green Deal is an absolute disaster and you know, 12 homes have been treated. And I did hear someone last night suggested maybe five of those were Tory MPs. I don't know if that's true, but it wouldn't surprise me. So we have no scheme to reduce the fact that one pound in four of what we spend uh, on heating our homes either goes straight out through an uninsured ceiling or through a drafty door or window. So we absolutely need to get serious about insulating homes, which would, of course, as well as reduce carbon emissions, have the added benefits of dealing with our huge problem of fuel poverty 
and create a whole lot of jobs. So that's one of the things that I think you know, illustrates a more general point, that many of the things that we're talking about in reducing carbon emissions, we need to explain to people that these can also make your life very much better. So for you know, another example is see, we need to look at changing our modes of transport, moving towards active transport, walking and cycling. 57% of the car journeys in Britain are less than five miles. So if we move towards walking and cycling, we tackle our major problem with air pollution as well and help to deal with our problem with obesity and diabetes and all the rest of it and cut carbon emissions. So there's many things that we can do that can both deal with carbon issues and also make our lives much better. Last month we looked at the uh, Zero Carbon Britain report, the latest version from the Centre for Alternative Technology. Does your policy dovetail with that? Are you you kind of drawing on, on some of the things that they're saying? I mean... The overall framework of it is there's a 60% reduction in demand, so that's um, you've just been talking about that, but also kind of scaling up the rest of the supply side with uh, renewable energy. That's, that's very much our focus, and of course it's probably most of your listeners will well know that we've been doing a lot of work in opposing fracking uh, and shale gas. And I think it's, it's really quite disturbing that we have a Lib Dem Energy Secretary who's been going around saying, I love shale gas. And that you... The shale gas arguments simply don't add up on climate grounds or on on economic grounds either. Um, you know, gas is the expensive uh, option for our energy future, and we also simply can't do it. I mean, we have to leave at least half of our um, fossil fuel reserves that we know about already in the ground. We've got to work out how to do do that to deal with the carbon bubble, and so we must we simply must not be going looking for more uh, fossil fuel reserves as well as all of the all of the, the local environmental issues that's associated with fracking. So you know, renewables is very much the way forward, and it also offers again real huge possibilities, particularly if you think about um, offshore wind, which is an area that we could really build on Britain's engineering expertise coming from the North Sea oil industry. A lot of that technology and that expertise can be transferred very easily into, into offshore wind. And we also have, as, as most people who live in Britain will know, we also have great resources in offshore wind, and we really need to be exploiting those, using those. And the reality is of, of all of the renewable options, whether it's solar, wind, or in the future tidal, we know what the fuel is going to cost forever, which is nothing. And therefore, they're really known cost options that you can plan and work for the future and know you keep the cost within bounds, which absolutely isn't true of fossil fuels. Mm, I mean, as uh, supply runs out and the, the price will just continue to escalate, I guess. Well, yeah, fuels. I mean, on gas, the um, International Energy Agency predicts the price will rise by 40% by 2020. Yeah. So if we lock ourselves into gas, then we're really locking ourselves into high, high energy bills. Exactly. Yeah. So how would you fund, uh, where, where would you find the money for this, this kind of mass insulation program and, and building renewables? What we'd be doing is, is in terms of mass insulation, it's something we very want to, want, to, want to put government investment into. And you get very good returns on that in, in terms of social returns and employment returns. And very much particularly the large-scale wind projects, will also need government investment. But for many smaller projects, what we very much like to see is a lot more community-owned energy. I mean, I was down in Lewis seeing a great project where the local community basically invested in putting solar panels all over the roof of the brewery, which is a, a very big roof that points the right way. And people in the community are getting a decent return on their investment. And there's also money going into the community for local schools, local community facilities and all of that. So what, if we have you know, large numbers of small-scale installations owned by the community, with the community investing in them and supporting them, 
And, you know, we're seeing in um, Bristol, for example, the local council is just putting up a big wind turbine, which is then going to put money back into to Bristol that they can use, use to spend for the community. So you know, what we need is a much more diverse, not relying on the big energy suppliers, but as much as we possibly can, encouraging that small-scale diverse. And that's also going to be a very resilient system. Mm. But in terms of, of financing, that, um, do, does that require government support? Um, a lot of it was, requires government encouragement uh, and making sure the frameworks are there. The Lewis thing is simply people put money into a local bond. So you know, there's actually a lot of money out there at the moment, given the very low rates, interest rates that, that savers are getting on their, on their investments. You can actually invest in, say, a solar panel scheme and get 5 or 6%. Which is, a bit, you know, which is a very good return. And so there's a huge untapped uh, potential resource out there. And if you're talking about local government, then you've got the possibilities of, of prudential borrowing because, of course, you've got a guaranteed return on that investment. And, of course, you've got government borrowing that's at much lower cost than private borrowing is. And this kind of brings us on to the next question, which is about this scale of transformation that we need in the energy and transport sector to, in order to decarbonise and get onto this plan B. I mean, does that require, should that be a national project? Should we, we be bringing those sectors into back into public ownership in order to kind of drive this forward in, in the kind of limited amount of time we have available? I think we certainly need to bring, in terms of energy, we need to bring the distribution system back into, um, into public ownership. I think a diverse... You know, a, a complex ecology, which is, is usually a good thing of in terms of that local ownership, community ownership, small companies, which, you know, we've got some innovative small companies that have really led on renewable energy. So have, have a real, real mix in there in terms of supplying energy. And in terms of transport, of course, renationalising, bringing the railways back into public ownership is something that, that we're doing an enormous amount of work on. Um, Caroline Lucas has a private member's bill now before Parliament, uh, which has actually been debated um, this week as we speak. And we've also been campaigning very hard to keep the East Coast mainline in public hands. It's a very successful railway. It's a much loved railway. I must admit, I personally love travelling on it. And it is working exactly as it is, yet the government's rushing for clearly ideological reasons to, to get it back reprivatised. Mm. What about at the international level? Does the Green Party have a voice at all at the UN or any way of influencing that um, debate around how we really get out of the stalemate and, and the kind of thinking that doesn't seem to be going anywhere at the international level? How would you approach that? I mean, the obvious sort of intermediate step in there is, is the uh, European Union, and the Green Party is the fourth largest group in the European Parliament, so that's somewhere we were able to make some real impacts. And you know, the Greens were instrumental in, in the recent decision by the EU to insist on environmental impact statements on shale gas, for example. So the European Parliament is a very important resource and you know, this is something we're very much focusing on because we've got the European elections coming up next year. And you know, we're aiming here in England and Wales to treble our number of MEPs going from two to six. And that means then we can really have a stronger voice in the European Parliament. But going on to the UN side of things, I think... We have to keep pushing on that. We ultimately need a carbon cap that covers the whole world. You know, the IPCC has given us the figures on the total emissions of carbon that we can manage to meet. We have to say, right, there's the figure, that's where we start from. Uh, and that's what needs to happen at an international level. But in the meantime, 
you know, what we need to do is also just keep acting and you know, doing everything we possibly can. And in terms of the national level, one of the things we haven't really talked about is also the need to reshape our economy to get away from, from a whole globalised economy where so much of our food is imported, where almost all of our clothing and furniture and all those sorts of things are imported and get back to local production. And uh, you favour contraction and convergence at the international level? Very much so. I, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time talking about how, looking at the British situation, we have to live within the limits of one planet, yet we're living now as though we had three. But, you know, even in the British context, the people who are having to depend on food banks to survive, the people who are living in fuel poverty, they need more. And, of course, when we look at that on a global level, there's many people in the world who need a, need a lot more, a bigger share of the world's resources, food, clothing, housing, all of the basics of life. And that means that the rich world really has to swallow up less of the world's resources. And there's also always, always the question of money at the UN talks. We need to be transferring some kind of money for adaptation and uh, clean energy to poorer countries. Um, do, what's your idea about how, how we could finance that? Well, obviously, um, you know, one of the things we've been talking about a great deal is a financial transactions tax, um, which is possibly to generate quite a lot of money. Or well, there is something, something of a tension between the, the Robin Hood tax concept and the Tobin tax, which would actually aim to reduce the uh, fluidity of, of money going around. But I think either way, you can certainly generate some money out of that. But we also have to recognise that we have, an, have a duty to the parts of the world that we've damaged with our historic carbon emissions and our historic colonialism that we need to support and help those countries both to improve their population situation while not growing their carbon emissions more than can be avoided and also to deal with the impacts of climate change. And finally, a kind of more general question about tactics and strategy. It's all well having a plan B, but are we expecting a, a landslide victory from the Greens at the next UK election? Um, or is it, is it also about changing, moving the position of the mainstream parties? And, and is there a, a, also a role for direct action and, and a fossil fuel divestment campaign? I think we're in a state now with British politics that I really believe that in the next few years, things are going to break apart. It's like those uh, the message you get on billboards for investment products, past returns and no guarantee of future returns. And you know, we're heading into a very different age economically and environmentally, and that is going to have to show in the politics at some time, I think, you know, pretty soon. Exactly where that's going to be, well, I think you know, if we can get six MEPs next year in the European election, that helps to add to the general story that the media is telling about the two-party politics breaking down. So I think it's possible to do a great deal. We have to encourage you know, every party to take on board environmental issues and certainly make sure that the government is doing as much as we push them as much as we possibly can. You know, unfortunately, the so-called greenest government ever has been a very sad joke. But what we, we need to do is, is work towards changing the whole frame of public debate, the whole, whole frame of where our politics is going. And certainly the Green Party believes in nonviolent direct action. And I think that there is times, and as Caroline Lucas demonstrated, is Balkan over fracking, when to get the message across, you know, nonviolent direct action very much helps to raise awareness, to get media focus, and to really ensure that debate is being had. Finally, in, in a sense, climate change has, has gone a little bit onto the Green Party's back burner in terms of messaging. I guess the idea was to get over that media idea that you were a, a one-issue party and that you had a full range of 
policies for, for every part of um, government. But are we at a moment now where, because of the, the kind of desert of ideas and the kind of corporate-leaning centrist parties, should that come back to the fore as um, people are, are more and more worried about um, the future for, for their children? I mean, it's never gone away, but it has very much. I mean, if you look at my uh, conference speech at Spring Party Conference, uh, I talked about th- three sort of main themes, one of which was food poverty, one of which was privatisation of the NHS, and one of which was absolutely explicitly front and centre climate change. We need to act now. So you know, we have to keep talking about the, the social situation. You know, we still have a huge problem with, with poverty in Britain, with people who ha- really haven't had a chance to recover from the financial crisis and the poorest being hit hardest by that. So we need to keep talking about all that together. So, I mean, what I try and do very much is talk about, is wrap it all together and say, you know, we need a, a radical transformation of our whole society, the way business works, um, the way housing works, the way our economy works, just the way everything needs to change. You can't just say, right, I'm just going to do environmentalism and not worry about economics, because it's all one complete system. That system of globalisation, privatisation, the, the rising inequality, all of that is actually tied to increasing resource consumption. You can't just tackle resource consumption without uh, tackling the underlying system as well. That was Natalie Bennett, leader of the Green Party of England and Wales. And in a few moments, we'll look at another tool that we have alongside non-violent direct action, which could bring to an end our onward march over the cliff edge in the form of the rapidly evolving fossil fuel divestment campaign. But first, we explore a bit further whether the speed and scale of the transformation we need means we should re-nationalise our transport and energy sectors. I spoke to Kat Hobbs, founder of We Own It, a group that campaigns for public services to be run for people and not for profit. So we've had about 17 years of a privatised rail service, so we must know quite a bit about how well the railways have served the public since they've been run for profit. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, obviously the the railways have been privatised for nearly 20 years and during that time passengers have really suffered because what we've seen is that fares have gone up and up and up, services have often not been great, we haven't had the capacity that we need on the railway and we haven't always had the investment that we need. In particular, fares are are the major complaint really. We've got the highest fares in Europe and every year they go up above inflation. So really passengers are being ripped off by the privatised rail companies and the system would be better in public ownership. What kind of level of subsidies have we been putting in as taxpayers? Well, there was a report that came out recently called Rebuilding Rail, which said that the government could save £1.2 billion a year by bringing the railways into public ownership. So that gives you some idea of the amount of money that we're putting into private rail franchises. And part of that is because the government needs to ensure certain outcomes in terms of rail. So it needs to make sure there's enough carriages, it needs to regulate the fares, which it does to some degree, it needs to ensure that there's an adequate service for passengers. And so whenever it wants to make sure that there's a certain outcome for passengers, it has to put that in the franchises with the private rail companies and then it has to pay them to deliver that. So it's not really a market in a meaningful sense of the word. If you want to go from A to B on the railway, there's only one way to do it. 
And that means really that the, the train companies have a lot of control and the government has to pay them lots of money to get the outcomes that we need for our railways. So the train news has been hit really hard in terms of fares, um, but some people presumably have made a lot of money out of this arrangement. Absolutely. I mean, I think if you're a, if you're a shareholder of one of the train companies, First Great Western, Stagecoach, etc., you'll be quite happy with the situation, and that's fine for them. But what about the rest of us who want to get the train? Um, not least because it's a, it's a green option. Um, it's often the only option for people commuting into major cities. Um, it helps people get to work, helps people travel around the country to see friends and family. For many people, taking the train, taking public transport is the only option. And the system that we have right now isn't serving them. So, yes, you know, if you're, if you're a shareholder in a train company, then you're getting a good deal. I think I read in the Rebuilding Rail report that train fares have gone up by 17%, I think, since privatisation in real terms. So that's above inflation. But Caroline Lucas has introduced a private member's bill into Parliament to bring back railways into public ownership. Would that help fares come down? Absolutely. And we were with Caroline Lucas today as she got ready to put that bill to Parliament. And we were actually presenting a petition on keeping these coastlines public because it's working so well. And I bring this up because we've got an example of how good public ownership can be. We have a success story. And although the money that's been saved on East Coast hasn't been put towards dramatically reducing fares, it could be. And if you think about it, across the network, £1.2 billion a year could go a long way towards making rail really affordable instead of unaffordable, as it is for so many people at the moment. Has there been any polling around how popular bringing the railways back into public ownership might be? Yes, it's very popular. I can't think of the figure off the top of my head, sorry. Um, the recent polling that we did on East Coast, only one in five people wanted the line to be reprivatised. And the petition we've just handed in on, on that had 25,000 signatures. But more generally, people want rail to be in public hands. I believe the figure is around 70%. I ought to double check that. What about the Labour Party? What's their position in all this? Um, are they supporting Caroline's bill? It seems like the trade unions have been making the case to Labour. Are they listening? I think Labour's position right now is very much in, in flux. They are coming out quite strongly in favour of a public East Coast. They think that East Coast should be in public hands as a benchmark for the rest of the network. So by having that one franchise um, run publicly, we can see how it compares to the other privately run franchises which is all very sensible, but obviously we think they should go further because the case for bringing the whole network into public ownership is so strong. And I think they're toying with that idea, is my understanding, but they, at the moment they're not taking a stand. Is there a, a cost in terms of um, bringing stuff back into public ownership? Would the private companies want buying out? Not really. One of the good things about the system as we have it is that a franchise is essentially a contract and it has an end date. So what the government could do to bring services back in-house is wait for every contract to expire and as they expire, don't renew them with a private company but run them publicly. Okay, just to look at energy for a second. I've been speaking to Colin Hines from the Green New Deal and Natalie Bennett from the Green Party who both said 
perhaps we need a mixed ecology when it comes to energy generation. So we have a mix of kind of public, private and community enterprises generating our energy. I just wonder in terms of the, this, the kind of massive transformation that we need in terms of moving to a kind of clean energy economy within you know a matter of decades and decarbonising our energy sector. Do you think that would work as a, a national project? I think with energy, it's tricky in a way because we need to have a top-level policy that aims very quickly towards decarbonisation. But actually, it makes sense a lot of the time for energy to be provided more locally. And I think that that is actually a really positive development that we should encourage. And public ownership doesn't have to mean top-down. It can mean communities producing their own energy, taking over responsibility and for, for their energy and, and making sure that they've got resilient supply so there's a campaign in Berlin at the moment to basically take over the energy grid by the community and I think that's that's a great thing what we have at the moment obviously with the big six energy companies is a sort of effectively a bit of a cartel and alongside that ineffective government energy policy and we need more clear guidance from government but we also need to involve local communities in, in energy production as much as possible. Despite the ongoing trend for government to continue headlong with this kind of privatisation agenda of public services, it actually seems that they don't really have a mandate for it. You've done some polling around it and people actually want public services not run for profit. Absolutely. Most people want to see public ownership as the default option. And 80% of people believe that when you contract out, there should always be an in-house bid. You know, that's even the case among Tory voters. So they don't have a mandate. Um, People also want to be consulted. So what we're seeing is a very undemocratic process of handing over institutions and services that actually belong to all of us. They're used by all of us. We all pay for them. And yet we are not being given a voice in how they should be run. Can you tell us something about the Public Service Users Bill that you're um, campaigning for? We Own It believes that the people who use public services should have some control over them and the public services should be accountable to them. So whether we're talking about hospitals or railways or your bin service or children's services, at the moment these services are outside of our control essentially and there's not much we can do about how they're run. And what we believe is that a bill would be useful in two main ways. It would mean that public ownership would be prioritised. So when national or local government is looking at how to provide a service, the first thing it should do is look at best practice public ownership. If it decides to contract out, we believe it should prioritise the public sector and organisations with a social purpose, so organisations which aren't focused on making a profit. The other part of it is about holding private companies more accountable when they run public services. So We believe, you know, before you privatise the Royal Mail, you should consult everyone about it and then make sure that the private companies who are involved in our public services are transparent, that they are subject to freedom of information legislation um, and that we can recall them when they do a bad job. So the Public Service Users Bill is all about making sure that services are run in the interest of the people who use them and making sure that when they are run by private companies, there's something we can do to hold them accountable.
That was Cat Hobbs, founder of the campaign group We Own It. And if you want to find out more about their campaign for a public user's bill, then check out their website at weownit.org.uk. The latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report that was released at the end of September showed that greenhouse gas emissions have risen by 54% since 1990 and that we are on the highest emissions scenario that they have modelled, heading for catastrophic levels of climate change if we don't peak and start to decline emissions within a matter of years. While direct action has been an effective tool for putting the brakes on some of our worst excesses, such as airport expansion, coal and fracking, it would be great if we could apply additional pressure in order to finally jolt the powerful out of their comfort zones so that we get on a low emissions path as soon as possible. I spoke to Louise Hazan of People and Planet, who is leading on the UK wing of a relatively new campaign to get institutions to divest from fossil fuels. Yeah, I mean, so the, the rationale for the divestment campaign is, is basically that, you know, we sort of know that climate change is no longer some foreign future threat. It's something that's kind of happening right now. And, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry is spending millions every year on sort of corrupting public perceptions of climate change, um, you know, continuing to dig for more fossil fuels, continuing to sort of dominate the, the global economy. And so the, the divestment campaign rationale is basically about sort of shifting the focus of climate campaigning and pointing the finger directly at the fossil fuel industry. You know, their business plan, fossil fuel industry business plan, kind of relies on them extracting and burning five times more fossil fuels than we know is safe to sort of keep the planet below two degrees of warming. And at the same time, we've got universities, churches, mosques, pension funds, all sort of invested quite heavily in those companies. And we think that by symbolically removing their investments in that industry, they could make quite a serious political and reputational dent in the industry by withdrawing those funds. Um, so that's why, you know, particularly to pe- People and Planet is targeting universities and their investments in fossil fuels as a student network. We think that's where we can make you know, the biggest impact. But, yeah, there's an interesting report that came out from Oxford University, I think, um, about a week ago, mm. which looked at other divestment campaigns of the past, and they seem to have, have, have been successful, and they kind of explained how they were working. It seemed to, seemed to suggest that at the end of the day it wasn't the direct economic impact that was the thing that really swung it. Can you explain how it's been working historically? Looking at, at past divestment movements, it's not necessarily been you know, the amount of capital that's withdrawn directly from a particular regime or industry that's been the turning point. The role that the divestment campaign has played is in sort of highlighting and stigmatising and kind of raising much more general public awareness about the issues with a particular company or, or regime if you're talking about, for example, South African apartheid regime or, or the tobacco industry, for example, probably two of the most famous examples. And it's kind of that stigmatisation process which has caused a sort of a snowball effect um, and actually been quite effective in, in opening up the political space for stronger regulation or for, for politicians to take a much stronger stand on, on particular issues or, or companies 
and that's essentially kind of what we're hoping to, to do with the fossil fuel divestment campaign. The Oxford report, I think, was quite encouraging from my point of view in the way that it kind of described the much more rapid sort of development of the, the fossil fuel divestment movement compared to 20 to 30 years for um, previous anti-apartheid kind of divestment campaigns to actually achieve its, its goal. Uh, but we're already seeing, you know, just how quickly the, the fossil fuel divestment message is spreading kind of rapidly across across the globe at a scale that's, that's just not precedented before. So I think the, the report's findings are really really encouraging actually from from a campaigner's point of view and they should be really worrying from a um, fossil fuel industry point of view actually. Okay we'll come back in a minute to you know what kind of strides the campaign has made so far in its kind of short mm. relatively short yeah. lifespan but um, one of the other things that struck me about the Oxford University report was like you say that the end result of, of those historical campaigns um, was that res- some kind of restrictive legislation would seem to be the normal outcome. Mm. Um, do you have any particular demands that you're kind of flagging up with this campaign? Yes, part of the rationale is to you know open up the political space for for the government to legislate and, and regulate the extraction of fossil fuels. Um, we've got an eye on obviously you know next year the big UN climate talks where we, you know, we absolutely need to reach a binding agreement on a global carbon budget. So, you know, we see sort of divestment playing a part in in opening up kind of the discussions around those bigger sort of legislative issues. But we're also not just focusing on divestment when we're looking at, you know, UK public institutions. There's all sorts of of ties um, and ways that they support um, and endorse and provide sort of social capital, if you will, to the, the fossil fuel industry, and we're we're trying to sort of break all of those those ties down. So I think you know if you found a, a large institution like Oxford University or say that you know the Church of England coming out and saying publicly we're not going to continue investing in fossil fuels because it's not morally right or, or financially responsible, but also you know, we don't want to lend our, our public support to this industry anymore, whether it be through the research that we do or, or you know, sponsorship that they receive from the industry. I think, you know, that's going to send a really sort of powerful message that resonates a lot more broadly. I mean, internationally, I remember there was an agreement at, I think, probably the G20 that um, we should end fossil fuel subsidies, but that seem to go nowhere. I think they suggested to the World Bank that they should look into it or something, and which means it's just been effectively kicked into the long grass. But I mean, that would be a real key point of leverage in a, in a sense to, to turning the energy economy around, wouldn't it, if, if we actually did that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's been all this sort of um, discussion in the, in the papers and the Daily Mail recently about, um, you know, the, the impact of green subsidy, well, subsidy for renewable energy on, on energy bills, but when you contrast, you know, those, those minuscule amounts to, you know, the, the billions in global fossil fuel subsidies, whether it's through the World Bank or or national governments, you know, it just makes a mockery of any government's pledges on, on climate change. Um, so I think, you know, definitely if we were able to secure some kind of global agreement around ending fossil fuels subsidies, that would be a significant victory and sort of step towards decarbonising our energy supply and, and boosting renewables. You've just published some new research on the relationships between the universities and fossil fuel companies. Mm. Um, so uh, flag up some of the key 
things that you've found out through that research, I mean, beyond the investments that universities have in fossil fuels? As far as we're aware, this is sort of the most comprehensive um, analysis that's been done of, of the different ties between the fossil fuel industry and, and our universities in the UK. And I guess what we what we found is that they're very pervasive and cover all sorts of different parts of the university's operations. So, for example, you mentioned obviously there's the financial side, and our research sort of shows an estimated 5.2 billion pounds invested in the fossil fuel industry by UK universities. But aside from that, um, it covers everything from. I suppose what we would term as universities greenwashing the industry. So, for example, universities providing over 20 honorary degrees and awards to you know the CEOs of companies like BP and Shell. Most recently, um, Birmingham University awarded a Distinguished Leader Award to Tony Hayward, who was the CEO of BP, presiding over that company during the Gulf of Mexico disaster. You know, that's that's just one example. Looking at the the research that's conducted in universities where a large proportion of research funding comes from oil and gas companies directly. We did an analysis of sort of over 250 papers published by Oxford's Institute of Energy, only three of which um, you know, were focused on re- renewables. It doesn't take a genius <laughs> to contrast that with the fact that half of its grants come from the oil and gas industry to see sort of to build a bit of a picture of just how the industry is influencing the research agenda within the UK um, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of, of other examples like that, but those are some of the key ones. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's a, a bit worrying that, I mean, you've, you've done a number of case studies in there and mm. another one would be in Imperial College London, I mean, which seems to come out in the media with a lot of kind of, you know, um, pro-fossil fuel messaging. Mm. Um, yeah. And they receive a huge amount of money from Shell and BP. Yeah, so part of the, the research that we did was crowdsourced from students and staff across a number of UK universities, including Imperial and some of the, the material that came in just highlighted, you know, just how every aspect of, of Imperial College London's, well, so many departments, and for want of a better word, infiltrated by former oil company executives. Um, a lot of the departments are directly sponsored by or, you know, named after some of the large multinational oil companies. In fact, I think Imperial's had more research funding from fossil fuel companies than any other UK institution. If you look at their website you know they're very proud to announce that and it's in very stark contrast to you know they also host the the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change which is publishing quite authoritative papers about the science of climate change and making very stark warnings about that and it's just a cognitive dissonance really between the two things existing in, in within one institution. Um, so these are all things that university campaigns could start to take the lid off on and, and shine a light on mm. um, and kind of points of leverage as well in your campaigning. Um, this is a relatively new to the UK. How quickly is it taking off here? The fossil fuel divestment movement actually kicked off just over a year ago. So it's, it's relatively young. It all started with an article written by Bill McKibben in, in Rolling Stone that kind of quickly went viral and he was calling on, on students to sort of take up the issue of fossil fuel divestment. It spread like like wildfire across the United States. 
um, so something like 300 universities over there. Um, school campaigns started in sort of a matter of six months. And in the UK, you know, we, we started earlier this summer and we've already got 20 student-led campaigns at universities around the country, including some of the, the biggest and sort of the most influential universities like Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial, Edinburgh. Some, you know, some of those are the biggest fossil fuel ties and, and investments. And we've already had some, some pretty big successes as well. We're working with um, other groups, so it's not just a university-focused campaign. We're working with a group called Operation NOAA, who are targeting um, Christian denominations um, and the, the Quakers, the first institution really in the UK to come out and say they're no longer going to invest in fossil fuels. They're, they're divesting all their funds from fossil fuel companies, which is a, a you know a really important early win for the campaign, given just how recently it's launched. Um, and you know we're, we're gearing up for a very big sort of public launch at the end of this month when Bill McKibben comes over to the UK for the tour uh, that we're planning with him. Okay, can you just tell us a little bit about that and how do people get involved? Yeah, so the the Fossil Free Tour is taking place um, at the end of the month, starts on the 30th of October and we've got three three stops in the UK, so we're doing three big live shows, um, one in Edinburgh on the 30th of October, one in Birmingham on the 31st and then big finale in London on the 1st of November which is the start of our annual conference Share Planet and anyone is, is welcome to come along to any of those events they can get information on our website at peopleandplanet.org and I think that's just the start of it really I think if you're you know interested to find out a bit more about divestment how, how using divestment can make an impact in the campaign to tackle climate change then that's a, a good starting point and you don't have to be a student. You could you could also be a member of a trade union that has investments, I guess, as well, or yeah. or a company that has a pension. Yeah, absolutely. This this is not um, a campaign that's exclusively for students at all. We've all got investments, whether they're in pension funds or the banks that we we bank with, and whether you're a member of a trade union that can can influence institutions. You know, we we've all got power over. It. A number of institutions, whether you know it's a it's a church or a mosque as well. So yeah, I'd I'd encourage anyone who wants to be part of of this movement to sort of look up um, peopleandplanet.org/fossilfree uh, and get involved that way. And if you're outside the UK, there's an international website as well, which is gofossilfree.org. That was Louise Hazan of People and Planet and the Fossil Free UK Network. Those website addresses again are peopleandplanet.org forward slash fossil hyphen free. And if you're outside the UK, go to gofossilfree.org. If you want references for this program or you'd like to hear other shows in this series, check out the Climate Radio archive at climateradio.org. I'll shortly be posting my interview with IPCC lead author Pierre Friedlingstein there which for technical reasons we were not able to use in this programme. I leave you with Archbishop Desmond Tutu's message of support for the fossil fuel divestment campaign, followed by the sounds of Philistine, who is participating in the Fossil Free UK tour, along with Bill McKibben and Greenpeace International Director Kumi Naidu and many others. This piece is ominously called Colony Collapse. Thanks for listening. The divestment movement played a key role 
in helping liberate South Africa. The corporations understood the logic of money even when they weren't swayed by the dictates of morality. Climate change is a deeply moral issue too, of course. Here in Africa, we see the dreadful suffering of people from worsening drought, from rising food prices, from floods, even though they've done nothing to cause the situation. Once again, we can join together as a world and put pressure where it counts.